Welcome to Barron Talks. I am Dr. Ralph Ford, Chancellor of Penn State Barron. I am very privileged today to have as my guest Dr. Melanie Hetzel-Riggin. Welcome here, Melanie. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm going to take a moment here and go through your bio, so if you'll be patient. Uh, Dr. Hetzel-Riggin is a professor of psychology and chair of Penn State Barron's psychology program. She's also a licensed clinical psychologist, and her research focuses on the effectiveness of bystander intervention to reduce sexual violence and peer mistreatment, as well as the relationship among interpersonal trauma, coping style, and mental health outcomes. Dr. Hetzel-Riggin is an affiliate faculty member in the Susan Hurt Hagen Center for Community Outreach, Research, and Evaluation, otherwise known as CORE, which for the remainder of this interview, we'll talk about it as CORE. She holds a Ph.D. and a Master's in Clinical Clinical Psychology from Northern Illinois University and a Bachelor's in Psychology from Quincy University. Today we have a whole lot of topics to talk about related to coronavirus. Love to hear about, uh, you know, the work that you're doing with students and the research around this, the things we do in CORE, uh, and learn a bit about you in the psychology program. So once again, welcome, and I'm going to stop and, you know, uh, let you start talking here in a second. But you've been a faculty member here now, how long, Melanie? Uh, this is starting my eighth year. Eighth year. And uh, you came to us from another university, and we're a faculty member there. Anyways, uh, just tell us, you know, a bit about your path to Bear and how you ended up here. Uh, what made you choose to research the things you do? So the floor is yours. Thank you. Uh, so I've always been interested in trauma uh, and, and abuse and, and violence uh, pretty much my entire academic career. I studied it actually as an undergraduate student and was able to, to really focus on it as part of the um, Family Violence and Sexual Assault Institute at uh, Northern Illinois University, where I did my graduate work. And it, it really was interesting to me because of just experiences I had growing up. And in an undergraduate, I was able to see how different people responded to trying situations that some people were really struggling and other people were doing OK. And that was really fascinating about why some people ended up having significant struggles and other people were able to come through relatively unscathed. So that's what I started looking at. I started looking uh, primarily at sort of internal uh, reasons, so coping styles, dissociative experiences, and then branched out to relationships, community structures that would lead to either improvements or barriers towards success after experiencing a traumatic event. And that's what I studied a lot uh, when I was in uh, Illinois, when I was doing both my graduate work and at my first academic uh, position. And then when the position here uh, came up uh, for the program coordinator for a new graduate program in applied clinical psychology, it was a really good fit for both where I was in my career, as well as the opportunity to make a difference in the Erie community, which I'm a, a, trained a little bit as a community psychologist. So being able to take what I do in a lab and really apply it, which is consistent with our open lab projects and, and being a land grant institution. So it was a really good fit all around. Uh, I love Erie. And so ever since then, I've been able to really expand what I do, looking not only at, at what individuals experience, but how that impacts uh, the community and how we can change the community to help people better. Well, tremendous impact on what you're doing. We'll get into more of the details, but I will say we're very happy that you chose to come here. So much. And uh, you're you're a very active faculty member. You were chair of the faculty senates. I mean, that's a huge opportunity in addition to running 
a program as, as chair and, and doing all of the research that you do, so uh, you are a presence uh, here on campus, to say, say the least. Uh, let's talk a little bit about, you know, definitions. Our psychology program is has a strong focus on this idea of trauma-informed care. I hear you and other faculty members talking about it, particularly related to young people, abuse, aggression, PTSD. What does that mean, trauma-informed care? So trauma-informed care is is a way to look at people's experiences with the understanding that people react to what's going on around in their life, what's going on in their environment, versus something necessarily inherent in an individual uh, by recognizing that people experience different events that they then have a reaction to that can impact them across their entire uh, lifespan from their biology all the way to their social relationships, their work world. Having that understanding changes how we respond to people from a what is wrong with you perspective to a what happened to you. And it just changes how we can respond to people more effectively and help people get um the best they can out of life. Um, some of the things to really consider from a trauma-informed perspective, whether that's talking a university, a program, a community, a school, is recognizing that um, trauma is widespread. The majority of people, about 84% of people, have experienced something that's considered traumatic, that you recognize that these events can have significant effects on people, and we respond to them by knowing that these can impact a whole bunch of different parts of people's lives, and we try to resist re-traumatizing these individuals. Yeah, I think that's a really good perspective because it's human nature to say, oh, you know, what's what, what's wrong with that person, right, uh, versus what happened, and then you can come to some, you know, helping that, that person. So how do you go about that, though? So let's say you're you're working with somebody or you work with a lot with students. You know, how do you put that into practice when you're dealing with them through core or our programs mm-hmm. or research and the like. What's what's that translate into? So I'll talk first as a faculty member. It's how I approach my students, how I pr- approach my colleagues, pretty much anybody I work with individually. It's just understanding that when people respond to you or to a situation, they're doing so because they've learned how to do that as a way to survive and, and thrive in their capacity. And so if people respond to you negatively. They're angry. They're upset. They're hurt. They, they leave. They're doing that because it worked for them in the past when they were dealing with a stressor. And if you take that perspective, it'll change how you respond. So let's say you have a student who's angry with you because they got a really bad grade. Well, they're threatened. So understanding that they're threatened and maybe how you can help them with that understanding that they're feeling scared and threatened right now versus that they're being defiant or they're being uh, they're not paying attention to, to the rules can just change little bits of how you interact. You can be more empathetic. You can provide them a sense of support, uh, reach out to them as, as another struggling human being who we all are. And that's just the step one. There's a couple other things. Uh, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration has some guidelines. So some real quick things that you can do is provide them a sense of safety, help people feel like they're trusted and that they can trust you, provide support, um, collaborate, provide collaborative solutions, providing a place for people to feel empowered and that they have a choice and a voice. And then also dealing with things like historical trauma, cultural issues, gender issues that may be influencing people's responses because of their previous learning experiences. So that's that broader sort of trauma-informed perspective. Now, how did this become a focus of our program and uh, the our, our core research center? How did that so, evolution happen? Mm-hmm. So 
when when I was hired seven years ago, uh, the impact of trauma and, and the effects of trauma was something that a lot of the psychology faculty members were already dealing with in their different subdisciplines. And so that became sort of a sub theme that everybody wanted to work on. And then when I was brought aboard, as well as with a couple other new faculty members and the new director of core, it all it was something that we all felt strongly was important to provide benefits to how we train our students, what the field is really looking for. The impact of trauma is becoming such an important understanding, no matter what type of, of work situation you have. And then with our through core, with our work with the school districts, with uh, community members um, and our core relationship with, say, the police force, um, as well as just some community organizations, the effects of trauma and, and how to mitigate that became such an important piece that it, it made sense to just broaden mm-hmm. that. It's certainly, I think, you, you look at the community, you look at all the issues we're dealing with, uh, not, like many, uh, it, it seems like it's really important for the Erie community. And I think you've gotten a, a tremendous amount of response and impact and grants and funding for all the work that you're doing. Let me switch it a little bit now, of course, to the current events. Mm-hmm. Coronavirus is trauma on a massive scale, and everyone's dealing with it. It's upended our daily lives. Um, what's your experience been? What are you observing over these last six months? It's been really interesting. Uh, one of my other hats is I'm on the executive committee for the Erie Coalition for a Trauma-Informed Community, which is a number of different uh, people, stakeholder groups, uh, mental health organizations, law enforcement, United Way, uh, who've been working to try to address the, the impact of COVID on a broader scale. So we've been in discussions with, say, the Erie School District, uh, Erie Police Department, um, different governmental officials, the Health Department, to try to figure out the best way to help individuals. And, and it really has, a, has such a strong impact on so many different things. People are scared. They're particularly people who not only are concerned about getting sick and the well-being of their family members, but also the impact on job loss, on the increasing tensions, racial tensions in the community, not just here, but across the mm-hmm. nation. And and people are, are stressed, like the level of stress, the level of, of traumatic response we're seeing is is more than I've honestly seen in my entire career before. So it's been an interesting thing to observe. Um, and, and because of that, we've and because of the relationship, both core and, and our relationships we've had with the ECTIC, the, the, the coalition, we've been able to work with the different school districts and provide them training on how to keep their students safe and how to keep themselves safe. Um, we've been working with law enforcement to try to get them to be more understanding and trauma informed in their roles. We've been working with the health department and some of the domestic violence uh, agencies in town to help them weather this crisis. So it's it's been interesting to see all of it and to be able to be in a position to try to provide as many resources as we can. Yeah, I mean, there are so many aspects. You just mentioned what I, I wanted to follow up on, and that's domestic violence. Is, mm-hmm. is there evidence that this has changed or increased during this crisis? Yeah, unfortunately, both at the national level and locally, I was on a phone call um, the other day with uh, a couple of different law enforcement uh, chiefs and th- their rates of domestic violence incidents have tripled, quadrupled, something along those lines. I've also talked to people uh, affiliated with Office of Children and Youth and their calls for child abuse have drastically increased. Um, 
So it's it's been difficult because a lot of people who, who are already at risk are now stuck at home. And the people that are normally their resources are not people they can connect with right now because of the physical distancing requirements. So we're also seeing inpatient um, admissions for psychiatric issues also drastically mm-hmm. increasing as well. So it's across the board of any type of, of negative outcome like that. Yeah, unfortunately, it makes logical sense. People are at home. They're under stress, you know. And uh, so it, it, I shouldn't say it's not surprising, but it but it isn't in terms of, you know, you look at uh, what's been going on with Black Lives Matter policing and the like. And there's a, a viewpoint now that we really should not be putting police into situations where maybe uh, health, mental health professionals and other support services. We should be investing there. Let police do what police do and are more trained for. Are you seeing that shift in the community? I mean, is is that conversation happening? The conversation is happening. It's a very heated conversation. Um, one of the benefits of, of what I do is I, I tend to work with community coalitions that have representatives from all of these different stakeholder groups at them. And so the good part is Erie actually has pretty strong coalitions that have existed for years. And so luckily the conversations about those things are happening with people who know each other and know each other's strengths. Uh, it gets a little difficult though, trying to figure out who's responsible for what, where the funding is, but there definitely are these conversations having are happening in, in the community, both for schools, for just the wider community about how to coordinate services where everybody is doing their job, but also all of the needs of the community members are being met. And, and that's a struggle. It's a struggle, not just here, but across the nation. You said it's a heated conversation. And my guess is because everyone views, tends to view things in black and white terms, or they don't dig deeper to understand some of the nuance and, you know, frankly, when I first heard the term defund the police, you're like, well, what, what does that mean? And, the, but then you start to understand that maybe the discussion is about really where do you put the resources? Is that what's driving the, the division? Just people thinking, oh, well, you're here to take away the, the police force. And, and maybe in the extreme case, someone believes that, but I'm not sure that's the mainstream viewpoint. No, and I, I think you're right. Funding is always one of the core issues when you come into any sort of conversation about who's doing what for the community and, and mental health has been just as education has been underfunded for years. And not that the police has an extensive amount of funding, but they have been more regularly funded in more recent years. And so, I mean, to fund the police is a, is, is a hot button issue because yeah, I, I don't think anybody wants to say we want to get rid of police entirely, but maybe what we need to do is think about what are our end goals for serving students, for serving the community, and who is best equipped to do that. And I think, again, from my experiences, how do we coordinate the services so that everybody who needs to be involved in the situation, whether it's a safety issue and the police need to be involved, a mental health issue, um, social workers, education, medical, that they're all working together in a way that is best effective financially, but also is, is meeting the needs of the people in the best way we can. And that's that's a difficult conversation to have. And we're in those conversations, but it's it's a complex web to try to figure out. I think the positive part is that this is this is uh, shined light on a lot of things. And, you know, we have to see where this goes over the next several years. And hopefully the, the focus remains there and that th- there are those changes. I wanted to switch back to your your teaching 
Because mm-hmm. what was really interesting was right in the midst of this, you're teaching a course on trauma and resilience here at Penn State Barron mm-hmm. while we transi- transition to remote learning. And I'm sure you took advantage of that for research and case studies with your students. Yes, it was really interesting because for the first eight weeks of, of I've taught this course a number of times before. So for the first eight weeks, we we're talking about, you know, what is trauma? What are the effects of trauma? What are the influences on trauma? And it was 8 a.m. on Monday morning is when my class was. So the first class back oh. my students had was, well, I guess we're going to have a case study on the topic. Um, so it was a really interesting transition for my students um, to be talking directly about what they were experiencing in real time in a way that really had never happened before. I've had students self-disclose traumatic experiences before in this class, but never had an experience with collective trauma. So it was a really interesting challenge, but also an opportunity for my students to apply what they were learning in real time. Um, so that was that was a really, you know, capitalize about the situation as much as I could. Do you have them reflect or journal on it at all through this process? Yeah, actually, it's a requirement for my course because of the sensitive nature of the topic. I always require my students to journal a few times but once every four weeks about their experiences, how it's impacting them, how because the, the idea of secondary traumatic stress and, and compassion fatigue is really high when you're talking about trauma. So I always provide a resource for students to be able to do that. And I'm really glad I did um, because they were able to really grapple with their own experiences and how it was related to the information we were learning and how they could apply it for, for moving forward. So that was a really um, helpful thing for them and for me to check in with them to make sure they weren't struggling and if they were to help follow up with them with resources that they should need it. Yeah, and I think that'll be so valuable to them in the future. I, I will say on a personal level, you know, as this whole thing has gone along, I, I don't journal at all. And that, but I, I, I do wish I had written down some of my thoughts because y- your hindsight, you, you lose it and it's not honest actually, uh, about what had happened. So if they had done that, it, I just look at that and think, boy, that could be really valuable for them in their own future when they look back five years from now. There's, there's sort of a, yeah, there's a push right now for a lot of people to journal their experiences from K through 12 all through college and, and beyond. So we'll see what happens. We'll be interesting to see in a few years what people have written. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let me take a, I'll ask you a question. Maybe that's, that, that'll be hard for you to answer. It gets to the, what's your advice for people? You know, we're social yeah. beings. We take comfort in being around others, uh, gatherings. It's, <laughs> it, what I realize is like this is more than ever. Once it's taken away, you realize how important mm-hmm. that is. Um, how do we overcome that? You know, what advice do you have for people in this this world? I would say do as much as you can to connect with people, even if you can't do it physically. Uh, we are social creatures and connection with others is, is one of our strengths as a species. And so if you can't physically connect with people, Zoom them, team them, phone them, um, it text whatever you can do. I I will say, and again, I'm a pretty, I'm an optimist by, by sort of my personality. And so one of the benefits we have now compared to even 10 years ago is the technology we have to be able to connect with other people is amazing. You can Snapchat, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, whatever with reason, but, but you can connect with people and keep that connection 24-7 if you absolutely had to. And so utilize whatever resources are available to you to connect. Heck, even even get back and write letters back and forth through the postal service if needs be. Just any way you can connect with people, particularly people who you care about and are worried about, 
is the better you can do. And I would say, you know, for all those who have more elderly people or lonely in your life, uh, and uh, we can all be better at this, reach out to them even when they're not reaching out to you because they're probably, you know, missing people to be sure. Another thing that I've been doing myself is I remember when I was a kid, I knew all my neighbors and I haven't done that recently until now. I can't go anywhere. I can't meet people. So I've been talking with my neighbors who I've known now get to know really well because we have the time and we can't go connect. So I can talk to the person who's on their patio across the street or next door. And so find ways to connect with people who you can reach. You know, that is amazing how much more we start to, I've seen, it's it's great. Our neighborhoods have completely changed. People are walking, people you've never seen before. Uh, our campus here is full of people who are just out walking and getting exercising. Bike sales are way up. So I think that that's a, that's a net positive in the way people have started to connect with each other. How about FaceTime, Zoom? Um, you know, what what's your thought on that as a, as a substitute or a way for connection? I, th- I think any form of communication and connection has its strengths and its drawbacks. Um, uh, personally, you know, I'm in the Zoom meeting sometimes all day, and it's great to be able to see people and connect to people, but it also can be very draining, particularly yeah. being in front of front of a video. So, you know, tempering that with um, whether that's phone calls or even just anything to do for your own personal self-care, um, going outside, you know, Taking out, taking a walk, taking a bath, whatever. It, it's a combination, just like you would in any kind of in-person connection. It's just, you know, temper it with time where you can be by yourself, particularly if you're an introverted person. Yeah. And one observation I have too is it, it is, it's draining for everybody and it works really well for like established teams, but it's hard to get to meet new people. You know, mm-hmm. we've tried to reach out, you know, if you're trying to form a new business connection or whatever else it may be, I find that a little more difficult. And I guess that makes some sense. Mm-hmm. Can't read the body language and the like. Well, let's talk about, uh, you know, social media. We know social media puts a lot of pressure on people. Uh, I saw a funny meme one time uh, early on in the pandemic. It just stuck with me about somebody wrote, you know, I always said, the reason I don't clean my house is because I'm too busy doing other things. And now I realize it's just because I don't want to do it. So whether, whether it's cleaning your house or the fact that you were going to take on a new hobby or read 17 books, mm-hmm. I think people put a lot of pressure on them, themselves in the pandemic to do those things. And maybe they're feeling that, that they're falling short. Should they? Yeah. No. What we're experiencing right now, I mean, we have as a community, we haven't experienced for over a hundred years. And I think everybody needs to give themselves a break. Um, it's great if you're one of those people who can write the next great American novel or learn how to speak another language. That's fabulous. But the majority of us, it may feel like we have more time, but our emotional, our emotional level of, of ability is going to be less for 90% of people. And so if you don't learn how to cook, if you don't learn how to speak a new language, that's okay. And, and, and maybe it actually is giving us a little bit of time to reflect on the pace of the life that we had prior to the pandemic. Uh, if, and if that's something we really want to go back to, is that the quality of life we want to go back to um, after this is all over? Uh, one thing I've been really excited about is, is just being able to slow down and spend some more time with my kids uh, prior to all this happening. You know, you get up and my kids were at school by 730 and I was at work and going to meetings and then I picked them up at 530 and then we'd have sports or Girl Scouts or whatever. And it was like 10 o'clock by the time we get back. And, and 
And is that something that we want to do moving forward? So it's okay to just slow down and, and just deal with what's right in front of us right now. Right. And some, and talk yourself through it, right? Isn't that, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I hate to get too far into it because what fascinates me is this idea, you know, and it seems to have a lot of effect, but I'm sure it has drawbacks as well, like cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in a, it, it's shown to be very effective in that if people can recognize when they're falling into that mental trap and start to basically talk themselves out of it. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. not saying it's that simple, but is, is there, that's, that's, that's a, an effective way for a lot of people, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Cognitive behavioral therapy is one of the most evidence-based practices out there. And it's actually really simple to look at if you're seeing a change in your mood, what are the things that are running through your mind? And are you making some assumptions or, or errors in your thinking? And just take a step back and look at things a little bit realistically. So yeah, if people can do that. And there's lots of resources to do that in the community as well, if people want to learn. And I think the answer is a lot of us are, are often making Bad, making bad assumptions about our thinking. <laughs> so it's good, good question to ask that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, let's talk about the, you know, social, social discourse. Mm-hmm. It's gotten very difficult. The news, uh, is, you know, left, right, in between. Everything seems politically motivated. And I, th- I think people are frustrated or they buy into it, you know, and I don't want to make a value judgment. I mean, what, any advice on that, on how we navigate that? It's, it's a complicated issue. Um, I, I do think there's some elements of, of, of a perfect storm happening right now when it comes to the social discourse on various different topics, whether that's political or racial tension or even you know, difficulties with mask wearing. Um, but it, I think a lot of people, and this is important to understand about trauma, that when people feel traumatized, they feel like things are out of their control and they can't predict what's going to happen. Those are, those are two main feelings. Mm-hmm. And so when you look at some of the social discourse and you look at it from a trauma-informed lens, you can see that. You can see that people are scared. You can see that people feel like they don't have control and that they can't predict what's happening. And when people feel that way, they, they lash out in anger. They lash out in defensiveness. They lash out from, from a, from a place of, of trying to keep themselves safe. And I would really encourage people if they're trying to have conversations with people on various different social media, which I would say try not to do. It's not really helpful. It doesn't really lead to much. But if you decide to, because it's a friend or a family member, try to take that trauma informed perspective that what people are saying they're doing that out of a place of uncertainty, out of feeling out of control, out of feeling unsafe and scared, and that to take a step back and try to figure out how to address those underlying concerns people have, whether rather than really the content of what's being said. And and so whether whatever the topic, I would just have people put that trauma-informed lens in their discourse to understand that even if people are completely disagreeing with you on a topic, there's still a human being who's going through a struggle and so are you. And no matter what, we have that shared humanity together. That's really great advice. And, and yeah, I've seen instances, I won't go into them, you know, with parents or from, from all sides. And I'm not trying to, and I, and I have actually had uh, some people come back and apologize to me on email. And I said, no, no harm taken. I'm just trying to tell you the best I can. Um, you scratch your head and I'm not saying I'm, I'm perfect about it, but I think all of us, really need to to understand that that relationships aren't what they were that we will get back there 
don't don't try to get into a fight with somebody that's going to be lifetime over over this <laughs> because we don't know what they're going through. Everyone has their own battle in life. I mean, that's uh, and we don't know what they're going through there. You know, I, I like to ask you what what is it? Are there any things we missed or things you want to talk about? Um, I do want to give a couple resources. I know that in the um, in our conversation, we talked about domestic violence and, and child abuse. And I will say in my conversation with stakeholders from those agencies and organizations, it has been a concern because the people say, you know, child care workers, teachers, other other providers who normally would see some of these things and be able to report it, that's just less likely to happen. So mm-hmm. I just want to remind people that if you are in a position to witness somebody who might be at risk for child abuse, you can always call Childline. Um, and that's, that's a, you know, statewide phone call. You can call even if you're not a mandated reporter. If you are concerned that you or somebody else is experiencing domestic violence, there is a countywide um, website. It's called purpleone.org that you can go to and find safe places to go and talk to somebody if you need resources or safety. And they will also connect you with either SafeNet or Safe Journey, depending on where you live, if you need resources. Uh, the Erie Coalition for a Trauma-Informed, Organi- uh, Trauma-Informed um, um, Erie County uh, has a website, uh, traumainformederie.org, that has a ton of resources for people about the effects of trauma for families, for teachers, for providers, for first responders, for the general community. That's a good resource for people. And then I'd also recommend that uh, Northwest Pennsylvania 211, which is sponsored by the United Way, if you are looking for housing, for uh, food assistance, uh, mental health help, pretty much any kind of resource, uh, you can go and call, you know, 211 uh, from anywhere. And it'll connect you with people who can help you get those resources. So I just want to let people know that those exist uh, for for people who might be struggling and and need some assistance in in whatever capacity they do. Well, thank you, Melanie. This has been Mm -hmm. a great conversation. My guest today is Dr. Melanie Hetzel-Riggin, professor in our psychology program here at Penn State Barron. Thank you. Thank you.